Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory fans, and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, where two longtime gal pals chug a lot of wine and talk about women you probably haven't heard of from history. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And we're very excited to have you here today. Woo! And you know what? Not only do we chug wine, sometimes we chug delicious smoothies made by Kelly's husband. Emily's like obsessed with the smoothies my husband makes. I don't remember what episode it is, but I remember I was editing it and there was like a lot of clinking with the spoon and the glass while you were doing your story because I was finishing off my smoothie. And since then, I have been dying for another one. So when you told me we were doing smoothies today, right. I could not get here well, fast it enough. It was because you asked me when we re- when we last recorded. You were like, "Can can Justin make us smoothies before we record?" And I was I- like, "I will ask." And he, <laughs> he was like, "All right, that's a little weird, but okay, sure, I'll make you smoothies." You know what? He should be flattered to have beautiful women asking him to make them smoothies. Right. I made him dinner for his game night. He made us smoothies, so, you know, equivalent exchange. Relationships are all about sharing responsibilities and working together to make each other happy with food. Right. Okay, (laughs) so this week, just like last week where Emily had picked the wine, but I said it, I picked this wine, and I'm just going to make Emily look pretentious by having her read it, and then we'll be back to normal. Here's the thing. If you had read this wine, it wouldn't have been pretentious. I would have been a little mad because I That's really, true. I'm really excited this, this about is this. This a wine that I was looking around the liquor store and I like was just glancing around and I saw the sign for this and I stopped and I was like, I'm getting this wine. <laughs> so we are drinking some wine called the Emily. Yes, I have achieved wine queendom by having a <laughs> wine named after me and I'm so excited. So this is a Chardonnay Pinot Noir, which I'm uneducated. Yes, I've never, heard, I've never of. heard of it before. <laughs> but uh, this is actually like the per- almost the perfect wine for this podcast because it's named the Emily and it's actually dedicated to a herstory hero. So I'm just going to read the back here. Okay. Although British-born Emily Hobhouse has become an honorary South African through her selfless and courageous actions, which exposed the inhumanity of concentration camps during the Anglo-Boer War from 1899 to 1902, we dedicate this wine to her memory and brave women fighting for what is right all over the world. The Emily is a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, which results in a light and refreshing wine with just a hint of color... C-O-L-O-U-R, because this is a South African wine, generally referred to as the eye of the partridge. There's also the French for that. No. No, we're not doing that. Enjoy well chilled. Did we? No. No. (laughs) I'm sitting on my counter. Why are we so bad at wine? But so we're definitely going to have to cover Emily Hobhouse in the future. Yeah, she'll, she'll get added to the list. But uh, the only way this wine could be more perfect is if it was a Moscato and if it was the Emily and Kelly. <laughs> right. We'll get there one day. We'll just yeah. start making our own wine, but then we can't sell it. We'll have to give it to people for free. But it's funny because Kelly was saying like, oh, I thought about saving this for your birthday, but that's way too far off. <laughs> like, and I, I don't want to wait. And I saw this thing on her counter. I was like, is this the wine? Is this it? Oh, my God. So I'm really excited. It's It's, it's good. It's... It's a very dry white, probably because it's mixed with that 
Pinot Noir, which is yeah. a very communion-y wine if you're just drinking Pinot Noir. So this is a very dry white, but it's it's a sipping wine. I we we binged some episodes of Veronica Mars before this, and we uh, enjoyed some smoothies and some wine. And yeah, it like I kept going back frequently for sips because I'm enjoying it. But you can't gulp this. Yeah, shit it's not down. like those other ones where we're like we could chug this bottle. <laughs> Put this in a juice box and send me off to school. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you have an idea for a cheers today, but I do. All right, go for it. So we have had. In typical fall Minnesota fashion, a fuck ton of rain this last week. And today is like kind of that second summer that a lot of you guys hear about. And so I'm excited. I'm cheersing to the beautiful warm weather. I'm it's sick like of the half rain. Of our cheers, I'm pretty sure. You know what? When you live in Minnesota, we in winter. <laughs> when you live in Minnesota and uh, the weather is not your friend. And it snows nine months out of the year. Mother, and uh, Mother Nature is not our friend. Mother Nature is a cold bitch. <laughs> <laughs> we will not be covering her because she sucks. Well, che- here's to the warm weather. Cheers. <laughs> Clink. That was, that was a good one. That was powerful. And so is this wine. So is the wine. Oh, what my God. Is it? Yeah, I took the first sip and I was like, oh, that just kicked me right in the teeth there. So it is It is a white because it's 96% Chardonnay and 4% Pinot Noir. I just, I want to see. I bet my mom would like this wine. Why won't you tell me your percentage? Oh, 13.5 alcohol by volume. Fair enough. All right. I'm going first. I don't know I was just thinking about that. Uh, I think I am because you started you are, off with I think the I last time. with the uh, the balloon queen, yeah. and I ended up with the self declared god of the world. <laughs> it's okay. Mine's mine's long, so you you can go first, and then you can nap during mine. All right, awesome. I'm gonna just digest all that smoothie. It was so filling, but I couldn't okay. stop. Like those last few sips were agony, and I'm like, right, you're cannot like, oh, my waste. too full, but so good. Cannot waste. Okay, so I am covering Luisa Capetillo. And, Italian? Uh, that's what I thought, but she's actually Puerto Rican. Okay. Yep. I was just hoping for not French. I, here's the funny thing. I, um, when I first Mine read her name. Mine has French in it, so. When I first read her name, I read the name as Luisa Capetillo. <laughs> And you're like, oh. And then I was like, I was oh, wrong. she's Puerto Rican. Don't, no, Emily, don't do that. <laughs> okay. Got to adjust to a new accent. Yep. Okay. So we've talked a lot about different ways women rebel, like riding bicycles, getting an education, and most of all, wearing pants. Make sure you have your pants permit, ladies. You got to have that ready. You can get carded at any moment. It's the price for pockets, I'm telling you. So pants have been taboo for women for ages and were even legally regulated a la pants permits, which we talked about in previous episodes. Well, today we're going to learn about the queen of pants. Ooh. You're just covering all, you covered a goddess, now you're covering a queen. The pants queen. (laughs) Luisa was born on October 28, 1879 in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Her father, Luis, and her mother, Luisa, were immigrants from Spain and France, respectively. So oh, there is okay. some France, but no French. French. 
thank God. I read that and I was like, fuck. At least they had an easy, easy to pronounce French name. Yep. Herstory headcanon, they definitely bonded over basically having the same name. Oh, yeah. Like, that was their meet cute. Oh, I'm Louise. Oh, my God. I'm Louisa. So nice to meet when you. When I was a teenager, <laughs> my, my friend tried to set me up with a guy named Kelly, and I was like, uh, no. I'm forever disappointed that didn't work out. <laughs> I never even met him. I was like, I just flat out said no. I'm like, that would be too weird. You know what, Kelly? You need to dream bigger. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. You need to let your wings like, we probably fly. never met then, so deal with it. <sighs> fine. Fine. It's fine. It's fine. Luis and Luisa never actually got married, but raised their daughter together. They were both very liberal and homeschooled Luisa under these philosophical and political ideologies. Nice. Early on, Luisa was influenced by the ideas of the French Revolution and the workers' rights movement in northern Spain. She would later write of her mother, quote, to you, dear mother of mine, who never tried to control me or make me think traditionally, you allowed me to inquire freely, only reproaching what you thought were exaggerations without forcing me in any way. Wow. So basically, her parents taught her to think outside of the box, and she's growing up with some big ideas. Right. So she's growing up. She's getting a very non-traditional education, and so she's being exposed to things that other girls at the time were not. So this made her a very spirited and opinionated child, which like working when I worked with kids, I would see these kids and I'm like, you know what? You're going to be an awesome adult someday. But right You're now, an as a but child. right now, I need you to sit the fuck down and eat your graham crackers. Okay. Can you do that for me? Can you stop trying to start an uprising in the preschool room? <laughs> I'm not a fascist because I want you to sit nicely. At 19 years old, Luisa met Manuel Ledesma, a young man from a very prominent family. These two crazy kids fell in love and had their first child, Manuela. So I love Luis, Luisa, Manuel, Manuela. Like... I don't think there's a a male equivalent to my name that I could, like, name a kid if they were a boy. No, probably not. I'm just going to name them Emily. Any name is gender neutral if you just go with it. Right. My name is gender neutral. So Apparently. There would be no problem. <laughs> so they had their first child in 1898. And then their second child, a son named Gregorio, was born two years later. Just way off track. What? I said just way off track with that name. That was like a grandfather or something. They were just trying to make him happy. Well, Jr. Honey, just if you just name this next kid Gregorio, it would just make my life so much easier. Grandpa is a salty bastard. <laughs> but mom, he's kind of an asshole. I know, honey, but just, just do, do this it, for me. <laughs> like Luisa's parents, they never married. But unlike Luisa's parents, their relationship ended after three years. Being unmarried and having babies was already scandalous, but becoming a single mother was the sensational cherry on the sordid Sunday. Alliteration. Like yeah. <laughs> Side note. So I read in one place that men had dueled over her, and I couldn't find this anywhere else except in this one resource. But her three headcanon, dudes were dueling for her. Like, oh. she was hot shit. Yeah, even with two babies. Amen. 
So to support her children, Louisa took a job as a lectora or reader in a tobacco factory while her mother watched the kids because empowered women empower women. A reader in a tobacco factory. What is that? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Louisa's job was basically to sit on a podium on the factory floor and literally read passages from literary works or essays. This job was normally reserved for men. So I don't know. Like, what- is she reading it like into a mic for the like factory work? I think she's, this is the early 1900s. So I think she's just shouting on the factory floor. So she's up on this podium reading from. But she's books. reading to the factory workers. Oh, okay, yeah. That's a little weird. Well, and I don't have music and stuff back then. I think it was partially supposed to be motivational, but there were also like Bible verses and they would reread the same ones and the factory workers would memorize certain verses. So it was almost like kind of a schooly, a little bit, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I don't fully understand it, but I'm like, I kind of want to do that. Can I just read Harry Potter to a room full of people working? Right. Can I get paid to do that? I'd I'd finally be able to attack my tackle my bookshelf of unread books. Right? Just be like, no, no, no. You guys don't need to pick anything. I'll just bring in books. Don't guys, worry about it. Guys, guys, we are reading Jurassic Park: The Lost World today. Buckle up. There's lots of crazy. While she was growing up, Puerto Rico was undergoing an industrialization, and wages for men were low, and those for women were even lower. Shocker. Kind of a historical pattern. Right. Like, no one should be shocked by this. It's not even a historical pattern. That's still ongoing. Well, yeah. But we are making history right now, Kelly. I know. That moment. By not getting paid at all to do this? That sentence I just said, that's a part of history. (gasps) And this sentence. And I could go on, but I won't. Please don't. This went against everything Louisa believed and had been brought up with, you know? She had this soups crazy idea that decent wages were a worker's right and would result in happier families more educational opportunities and less domestic violence yeah that sounds about right see this is why women don't get a platform because they spout nonsense leave (laughs) i know you're kidding but leave now (laughs) even as a joke we cannot like deal with that It was working in this factory that she witnessed firsthand the plight of the laborers and became exposed to labor unions. Louisa was acutely aware that male laborers were taken advantage of and that it was even worse for women. There were no weekends, there were uh, no child labor laws, no minimum wage or other unsexy finger quotes, luxuries that we see as basic workers' rights today. She began writing essays titled Mi Opinion, My Opinion, (laughs) if anyone didn't know. No, women aren't allowed to have opinions. uh, Which were published in radical newspapers. Oh, wow. And then she later wrote in her book, quote, Oh, you woman, who is capable and willing to spread the seed of justice? Do not hesitate. Do not fret. Do not run away. Go forward. And for the benefit of the future generations, place the first stone for the building of social equality in this in a serene but firm way with all the right that belongs to you without looking down since you are no longer the ancient material or intellectual slave. So I really like that quote. That's awesome. I just love that. Don't hesitate. Don't fret. Don't run away. Go forward. I like, like the serenely but firmly. Like, put that brick down. 
but like be be firm about it but also like don't be aggressive yeah like just oh we're here be and tactful. we're not going anywhere you know and may- maybe the next stone uh goes down a well on top of a rapist but you know that first stone is we'll get it back. firm we'll get the but second serene <laughs> we'll bring it back up the well Louisa was able to show how home issues such as family, single motherhood, and women's rights were relevant to politics, wages, and education because all of these things are interconnected. (gasps) I'm going to say so much stuff that's like, duh, but at the time, it was super radical. Yeah, at the time, it was very much, you should be lucky to have this job and you will do what we tell you and fuck you and your life. You don't get to have one. While she was an advocate for women's rights in general, she primarily focused on fighting for the rights of working women, arguing that affluent women weren't affected by the same issues as women who needed to take jobs to support their families. Which, fair, she's like, hey, all women deserve opportunities, but let's also acknowledge that these women who have to take jobs to support their families are dealing with a whole new rainbow of issues that affluent women who are hiring people to take care of their kids don't don't have have to to deal with. At all. And we can acknowledge that. Like, our problems are different, but they're all important. In 1905, Louisa participated in her first strike for agricultural workers as a labor organizer. This led her to become a prominent labor leader, continuing to fight for workers' rights and writing union literature while fighting for women's suffrage in her spare time. She is spare time. (laughs) She's feisty. She's fighting for all of it. Now, strikes were not and still aren't willy nilly affairs. They are the result of desperation as workers fight for basic rights so their jobs wouldn't kill them. Yeah. Like at the time, it was hell. You needed a job and it was probably going to kill you. Let's remember the Tinkerbell of paper bags where factory workers were regularly stabbed by the machinery they were working on until a young girl came in. "Hmm, I think I can fix this. Yeah. Until a young girl came in and is like, you know what I would really love to do is to come into work and not get stabbed. That sounds like a benefit. So at the wor- at their worst, these strikes were fucking deadly. This was not fun. This was not a vacation. Still isn't. In 1909, she wrote her book, My Opinion About the Rights, Liberties, and Responsibilities of Women, which kind of reminded me of Alain de Gouges, the yeah, Declaration kind of. of the Rights of Women yep. and the etc. Which so that's where this pre- that previous quote came from. In this book, she boasted her radical ideas like the importance of equal education for all, free love, and the fact that women were treated as lesser than men was bullshit. (gasps) Le gasp. Le gasp. See, there is French. (laughs) Her book would be the first feminist thesis written in Puerto Rico, and people were into it. Oh, good. A lot of times you see that the women all write a book and everyone's like, nah. Get back in your station. Yeah. I think a lot of her ideas were shocking, but resonated with the majority of working people and women, especially women. All the women. Louisa was a strike queen and participated in many. The most famous one she organized was the Sugar Strike of 1916, where over 40,000 sugar industry workers protested for five months, demanding better hours and better pay. Wow. This wasn't just the largest strike Louisa organized, but the largest in Puerto Rican history. 
Unfortunately, the strike was bloody due to confrontations between strikers and police. That's not good. No. The strike did, however, result in pay increases for laborers across the sugar industry and impacted the future economic development and political organization across the nation. So this was like a really big moment and has affected everything after it. I think I read somewhere and I was trying to find more information about the sugar strike and was having a really hard time. But I think I read somewhere it was like 10% of the working population was a part of this with those oh, 40,000 workers. Yeah. I might be making that up. Do not quote me in your college essay for your own sake. <laughs> Where'd you get this? What's this? What's this uh, whining about herstory that you cited? Uh, it's a it's a herstory podcast where uh, two chicks from Minnesota drink wine and uh, talk about women from history. Do you really think that's an academic source? Are you telling me women can't be smart? And that professor will back the fuck off so fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you uh, are you uh, marginalizing women who are talking about other women? Are you saying that's not okay? <laughs> you know what? You're fine. You're fine. You pass. You're fine. Get You're out of my office. <laughs> Now, throughout Luisa's labor efforts, she committed what was probably her most rebellious, scandalous act. Luisa wore pants. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. I'm wearing pants right now. <laughs> Me too, because we're fucking rebels and we're going to go ride our bikes later. <laughs> I, try, I was trying to think what else we could do, but my, my brain um, is, Tomorrow my we're brain going into lined. our jobs. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm not. I'm... I'm going into my job, but it's here at my house. You're still working. Yeah. It counts. Good. Be better. In fact, Louisa was arrested for, quote, causing a scandal. Hmm. Very sexy. By wearing pants in public. She was the first woman to wear pants in public and made no apologies for her diabolical act of rebellion. Louisa defended her choice, saying, quote, Your Honor, I always wear pants. Then lifted her dress to show she was actually wearing pants under it. Nice. <laughs> and on the night in question, instead of wearing them underneath, I wore them just like men do, based on my perfect civil right to do so on the outside. So she's Did like, you actually say that? That's okay. the quote. That's the quote. I was like, was that last part tacked on by you? or was it <laughs> No, it would have been uh, less poetic, probably a lot more sexual. <laughs> probably. Maybe a little swearing in there. Definitely swearing. Deaf. In a shocking twist, the judge actually dropped all charges. Oh, good. It's kind of like my like Australian people that they were like, well, the law says men can't do this, but it doesn't say anything about women. Here's the thing. I don't think it was against the law for her to wear pants. No. Which it was just something women didn't do. Yeah. So basically, she was arrested for wearing pants because it was making people uncomfortable. Some cops so saw they, her so and they was didn't like, know what else to do. So they were just like, uh, we're going to arrest you now. Some cops saw her and they're like, oh, hey, man, you wearing, whoa, 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 you're a chick. I'm having so many confused feelings right now. You're kind of hot, but you're in pants, and I don't you're know how to feel. To I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I need I need to put you away, because I cannot <laughs> confront these emotions. I mean, dudes dueled over her. I bet she was pretty fucking hot. Right. Not that that matters. No. But her I mean, no wonder she was hot, because she was wearing a dress and pants. Yeah, that's super hot. 
Uh, so next time you hear someone saying women shouldn't wear leggings as pants, remind them that society has a long tradition of punishing women for their clothing choices, both legally and with violence, and maybe they should worry less about what women are wearing and find some real problems to channel their energy into. <sighs> you do a day. Deep breath in, deep breath out. But seriously, like, we're still fucking doing that crap well, and oh yeah, bitching about what women are wearing. You hear all the time that, like, oh, this girl got banned from school for wearing this. And you, like, look at what she's wearing and you're like, no, that's perfectly fine. What is wrong with you? I wore that to work the other day. Right? Like, <laughs> jeans and a t-shirt. What? But the boys can walk around with their boxers hanging out. And oh, no and their Hooters t-shirts. Right. Like, don't you fucking tell me this is for their benefit because you're just reinforcing the idea that women are responsible for men's sexual desire. I'm I'm sorry, if men can't handle my shoulders, something is wrong with them. Deeply. Deeply. All right. Rant over. Let's continue. Louisa became a reporter for the American Federation of Labor and traveled around the country educating and organizing women. This is still in Puerto Rico, right? Yes. She also started her own newspaper, La Mujer, or The Woman, which, what? I knew that one. See, I thought I did, and I had to look it up to double check, because if I give a translation in this that's wrong. Spanish, isn't it? It is. Well, yes. Puerto Rican. Yes. Uh, So this newspaper tackled women's issues like education, equal pay, voting rights, and just general autonomy. Just general being allowed to live our lives. In 1912, Louisa went international, (gasps) traveling to New York City, Florida, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic to help organize workers and join them in their cause. That's awesome. Cuba actually tried to deport her for her (laughs) efforts. She's like, they're like, get this pants wearing bitch out of here. We cannot have this. She's like, nah. Nah, I'm not done yet. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. I really like your pants here. I think I'm going to (laughs) stay. You have so many belts. As I mentioned before. They also have sugar plantations. So she can, you know, have a second sugar revolt. Yes. I'm basically, that's why they want to kick her out. They're like, no, you did this once. (laughs) As I mentioned before, Louisa wrote about free love. And for those of you who are like me and had to look up the exact definition Free love is the idea or practice of having sexual relations according to choice without being restricted by marriage or long-term relationships. Because, like... So, she's she's down with open relationships. Yeah. So, uh, like, polyamory. Yeah. Kelly's thinking about it. <laughs> well, because polyamory is more not necessarily physical. It's more about, like, emotionally loving more than one person, whereas this sounds more physical well her i'll get into it but her whole thing is that her whole thing is that it's all about adults being in consenting and healthy relationships and those don't have to be restricted to we're dating and we're married and all the societal structures around the way we feel we say relationships should be yeah so it's open relationships and polyamory it's both yeah Louisa advocated for informed consensual relationships that weren't restricted by the cultural norms of the time. She was basically laying the groundwork for modern non-monogamy, 
And remember, this was the early 1900s, so I can imagine that dating was not easy for Louisa. No. I mean, that's back then it was still probably a lot of like, oh, you're in this class tier and you're in this class tier. You're just going to be together. Well, and because it was scandalous for her to be dating uh, that one guy yep. who was and in then a... she had kids, which yep. was scandalous. And then he left her, which is even more scandalous. Yeah. Just l- scandal. You get a scandal. You get a scandal. Look under your chairs. There's some scandal. <laughs> uh, Louisa had some unique religious ideas for that time, too. She felt that you didn't have to go to church, pray, or even follow a particular religion to be a good person. And she taught this to her children. Lay gasp. Good on her. She wrote to her daughter once that it was more important to care for the poor, hungry, and sick than going to Mass. I love that. I I fully agree with that. Here's the thing. You can go to Mass every day for the rest of your life, but if you're a dick, none of that matters. It does not fucking matter. No. Okay? Let's just all say this right now. Being religious and going to Mass and praying does Does not not make you a good person. It does not make you a good person. Sorry. Cut you off there. No. Because you, you're right on board with me, and I appreciate it. And the fact that in the like early 1900s, she's teaching her kids, like, hey, instead of like just going to Mass, how about you put into action what they're telling you to do at Mass? Right. And that's more important than actually going to Mass. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, life was not easy for Louisa. She's doing all this work in Puerto Rico and internationally uh, she's being attacked during strikes. Men kept their wives away from her f- out of fear that her insane ideas about equality would taint them. It's catching. It's and, like hysteria. It's and catching. then dating was hard. You know, it's hard everywhere, but it's really hard when you're like trying to educate people about right. consensual non-monogamy in the early 1900s. So You know, on top of everything else she's got going on on top of uh helping liberate the working class yeah Yeah, and wearing pants in 1919 luisa helped pass a minimum wage law in the puerto rican legislature so it was worth it yeah that's cool on october 10th 1922 luisa died from tuberculosis Uh, yeah that took a real sharp turn that's basically how all these articles like she's rocking in Yeah. And I mean, that's they're like, oh, she did this, that and the other thing. She was killing it. And then she got killed. Oh, there's there's no lead up to that. She just died. Yeah. Uh, so she was buried in the municipal cemetery of her hometown of Arecibo, which, thanks to her tireless fight for workers rights, had become one of the most unionized towns in the country. Aww. Yeah. Legacy. After Luisa's death, her work and her fight for workers and women's rights were largely forgotten thanks to poor preservation and few reprints of her writing. Par for the course in history, am I right? You're too right. I'm too right. That rarely happens, but it's <laughs> always when I say something sad. <laughs> that is until her works were rediscovered in the 1970s and 80s. Journalist and author Professor Norma Valle Ferrer wrote a book called Luisa Capetillo, Pioneer Puerto Rican Feminist, detailing Luisa's life and work. In 1990, a made-for-TV movie called Luisa Capetillo, Passion of Justice, was made. In her hometown of Arecibo, there is a nonprofit called Casa Portuguesa Luisa Capetillo, which helps abused women. And like I was trying to women's shelter. That's what I think. I was trying to figure it out, but like Casa Portuguesa is um like 
preserved house. house. <laughs> so I, so at first I was like, oh, is that the house she grew up in? But it's talking about it's helping abused women. So I yeah. think it's a women's shelter named after her. That's nice. The University of Puerto Rico Calle campus created the Capitillo Center of Documentation Hall in 1990 as part of a larger women's studies project. Nice. And then on May 29th, 2014, Luisa was posthumously awarded a plaque in the the plaza in honor of Puerto Rican women in San Juan, along with 11 other deserving women. I didn't look up who the others were because I was running out of time. God, Emily, way to give people the time they deserve. So beyond the recognition, Luisa's work was critical for improving the working conditions for laborers and women everywhere. Because none of we would not have 40-hour work weeks. We would not have weekends. Your children would be working in a factory right now if people like Luisa didn't step the fuck up and say, hey, employer, you're full of shit. Stop working people until they die and letting them get stabbed at work. Yeah. Okay? It's not cool. So that is Luisa Capetillo. All right. We're on to our second story of the day. So I'm covering a STEM woman called Rosalind Franklin. That name sounds a little familiar, but I don't know who it is. That's like, oh, Ben Franklin. Oh, I don't think she was related. That's his wife. No. Or daughter, no. sister, no. cousin. I don't know. He's not in this story. <laughs> You're just gonna uh, like this. This is gently an- squeeze yeah, Ben Franklin like- in here at some point. And Ben Franklin, anyways. Um, <laughs> ben Franklin. So Rosalind was born on the 25th of July, 1920, in Notting Hill, London. She was born into an affluential and influential British Jewish family. Her father was Ellis Arthur Franklin, a politically liberal London merchant banker who taught at the city's working men's college. Her mother was Muriel Frances Wally. That's it. That's all they had about the mom. She's got this really regal name, Wally. Oh, okay. (laughs) Rosalind was the elder daughter and the second child of, of the five children that they had. Her uncle, actually, no, sorry. Her father's uncle was Herbert Samuel, who t- who is later Viscount Samuel. He was the Home Secretary in in 1916 and the first practicing Jew to serve on the British cabinet. Her aunt, Helen Carolyn Franklin, known as Mammy in the family, was married to Norman de Matos Bentwich, who was the Attorney General in the British Mandate of Palestine. Bentwich Franklin. Right? I see how this connects. <laughs> there you go. Um... <laughs> Helen was active in the trade union organization in the women's suffrage movement and was later a member of the London County Council. There's, like, I'm telling her background because, it, like, it comes about. It's all, it, it all influences right. her. Right. Hugh Franklin was another prominent figure in the suffrage movement, although his actions therein embarrassed the Franklin family. <gasps> I didn't look up what he did, but I just thought that was funny. He whipped his dick out at a suffragette meeting and everyone's like, who the fuck brought this asshole? Right. Rosalind was actually named in honor of Hugh's first wife, who died in the 1918 flu pandemic. So obviously, as I said, her father worked actively at the Working Men's College, so most of her family was actively involved. Her father taught many subjects, including electricity, magnetism, and the history of the Great War in the evenings. He later became the vice principal. From early childhood, Rosalind showed exceptional scholastic abilities. At the age of six, she joined her brother Roland, who's her older brother, 
at Norland Place School, a private day school in West London. So, you know, affluent family. Nice school. Whenever a school is called Place or anything's called Place, I'm like, oh, oh, that's oh, snazzy. That's fancy. that's fancy. Oh, my goodness. Right? Um, at that time, her Aunt Mammy, as described above, <laughs> um, described Rosalind to her husband as thus, quote, Rosalind is alarmingly clever. She spends all her time doing arithmetic for pleasure and invariably gets her sums right. That is alarming. (laughs) As someone who's terrible at math, that is horrifying. She also developed an interest in cricket and hockey. At the age of nine, she entered a boarding school, Lindor School for Young Ladies in Sussex. The school was near the seaside and the family wanted a good environment for her delicate health. Literally, they don't say like why her health was delicate. They just say for her delicate health. She coughed like three times in a row and they're like, get this chick into a bubble now. After that, when she was 11, she went to St. Paul's Girls School in West London. And it was one of the few girls schools that actually taught physics and chemistry at the time. Oh, shit. Yeah. Which is good because that's what she likes. <laughs> At St. Paul, she ex- excelled in, in science, Latin, and sports. She also learned German and became fluent in French. Oh my God. Right. So that's Anyone the becoming end of the story. fluent in French, I'm like, yep, you're awesome. So she's doing math for fun yep. and she knows French. French. And German. French, and Latin. I mean, that's the end of the story, right? She's just <laughs> that's the it. golden she, god. Yeah, she, she learned French. We're none. <laughs> Um, she topped her classes and won annual awards. Her only educational weakness was in music, for which the school music director, the composer Gustav Holst, once called upon her mother to inquire whether she might have suffered hearing problems or tonsillitis. She just, she can't just be bad at music? Nope. Well, I mean, she can, but they just wanted to make sure. Um, so which, she's really good at everything but this one specific thing. Is she okay? Is she, okay? <laughs> is she dying? Right. With, do we need to bring her back to the sea for her delicate health? Basically. That was that was her delicate health problem. Right? She couldn't hold she, a tune. She's terrible. She's either. fucking tone deaf. And they're like, this chick needs so much help right, right now. With six distinctions, she passed her matriculation in 1938, winning a scholarship for university. The school leaving exhibition of $30 a year for three years. And she also got $5 from her grandfather. But she never learned to play. Her father asked her to give the scholarship to a a deserving refugee student. So that's how her dad felt about women going to school. Wait, so she got a scholarship to continue her education. Dad's like, you should get it to a refugee student because he helped a lot with refugees, I guess. Well, is he going to pay? I get that if he's going to pay for her to go to school. he, He wasn't big in women schooling especially like the sciences okay like it's okay she she, she blew off her dad good good she shoved that flute that she never played (laughs) right right up his ass rosalind went on to newnham college in cambridge in 1938 she studied chemistry within the natural science tripos don't know what that is there she met the spectroscopist bill price who worked with her as a laboratory demonstrator and who later became one of her senior colleagues at king's college london in 1941 she was awarded second class honors from her final exams which at that time that was in a distinction accepted as a bachelor's degree in qualification for employment because cambridge didn't begin awarding bachelors of arts and masters of arts to women until 1947 so however 
they did retroactively give everyone that passed those courses their stuff. Good on them. But it counted, people counted that toward working as a bachelor's degree. Okay. So, yeah. In her last year at Cambridge, she met a French refugee named Adrian Weil, a former student of Marie Curie who had a huge influence on her life and career and helped her to improve her spoken French and they would remain friends for the rest of their lives. I love that she has one degree of separation from Marie Curie. Right. Like. It's pretty sweet. I love when famous people from history are all best friends. It's like, oh, you just casually served Picasso coffee at your house. Right. You just casually like wrote letters to Marie Curie bitching about your boyfriend. Uh, Oh my God. Right. Rosalind was best described as an agnostic. Her lack of religious faith apparently did not stem from anyone's influence, but rather from her own thinking. She developed her skepticism as a young child. Her mother recalled that she refused to believe in the existence of God and remarked, quote, well, anyhow, how do you know he isn't she, end quote. Boom. She later made her position clear, now based on scientific experience, and wrote to her father in 1940, quote, Science and everyday life cannot and should not be separate. Science, for me, gives a partial explanation of life. I do not accept your definition of faith, i.e., belief in life after death. Your faith rests on the future of yourself and others as individuals, mine in the future and fate of our successors. It seems to me that yours is the more selfish. As to the question of a creator, a creator of what? I see no reason to believe that a creator of protoplasm or primeval matter if such there be, has any reason to be interested in our insignificant race in a tiny corner of the universe. An hour and a half to circle the Earth. Oh, my God, how small this planet is. Yeah, that's not a direct quote, but that's what Kalpana Chawla was saying when she was in space. Like, my, how small we all are. Yeah, how small and insignificant. Who was that lady that you covered who determined that God wasn't real because she prayed before some exams and then not others, and she did better on the exams. She didn't pray. She didn't pray before, so she's like, "Nah, I'm done." I like to think the I I like to think Rosalind did the same thing. I don't remember. It does say, however, that she did not abandon her Jewish traditions. As the only Jewish student in Lindor's school, she had Hebrew lessons on her own while her friends went to church. She joined the Jewish. Jewish society while in her first term at Newnham College and out of respect for her grandfather's and out of the respect for her grandfather's request. So her her grandfather like kind of asked her to do it. Yeah. Been there. Why do you think I'm confirmed? (laughs) Yeah. Right. She she confided to her sister that she was, quote, always consciously a Jew, end quote. So she's another like Jewish student organization alum. Except she's actually Actually jewish Jewish. so in case you didn't know kelly and i were members of the jewish steward organization i was the treasurer and kelly what i think i was just a member you were just a member because our friend was the president and she was one of the only jewish students on our campus right there was like three members and she's like guys i need more members yeah well she needed help and we we had started helping already and then when she became the president after the previous present graduated we just like inherited all the officer roles (laughs) that's funny we threw some really cool events though and like they did really well on campus yeah i was gonna say i think by like our junior year i wasn't really doing it anymore because they didn't need the assistance anymore well i don't know if uh that student was still on campus at that time yeah, she might have left our sophomore year. But I remember like being in the basement of our dorm learning the dance to Hava Nagila 
you know? Yeah. Hava, Nagila, Hava. And like, my God, We're it way looks off so topic. easy. Those steps are hard. I am not coordinated enough to do that dance. That's funny. Anyways, back to what we were talking about. Rosal- about us. Rosalind was awarded another research fellowship when she was at Newnham College, with with which she joined the Physical Chemistry Laboratory of the University of Cambridge to work under Roland George Rayford Norrish. So his name is, sorry, I said Roland, but it's Ronald. Ronald George Rayford Norrish. Are you sure he doesn't have a fifth name <laughs> squeezed in there? Now that I see. Um, he would go on to later win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Oh, well, good for him. Right. They couldn't put his uh, whole name on the prize, though. I bet they had to right. abbreviate it to initials. <laughs> However, as Norris is described by her, his bio- biographer later, he was obstinate and almost perverse in argument, overbearing and sensitive to criticism. So him and Rosalind did not get along very well. Oh, so he was a prick. Yeah. That's a very nice way to call him a prick. <laughs> he could not decide for what for her what to work upon and at that time was also succumbing to heavy drinking she wrote that he made her despise him completely she resigned from norish's lab and fulfilled her requirements of the national service acts by working as an assistant researcher for the british coal utilization research association so So she peaced out because he was a dick yeah so bcura is where she she ended up working in 1942 bukra yeah I'm going to use that because they talk about it quite often. And I'm like, I'm not going to say the British Coal Utilization Research Association every time. This episode will be three hours long. (laughs) Continue. So um, the BCURA was located on Combe Springs Estate near Kingston upon Thames near the southwestern border of London. I don't know why I kept all these places in there, but I'm like, sure, we're going to tell everybody where they are. Just just in case you're trying to figure out if this is near your London flat. Um, Norrish was an advisor to the military for the BCURA, which is kind of how she was able to, like, be like, yeah, you know, my my scholarship was to work with him, but we don't get along. So, she's, you know, that's kind of how she was able to, like, circumvent it and still get her scholarship. Right. John G. Bennett was the director. And Marcelino Pirani and Victor Goldschmidt were both refugees from Nazis who were consultants and worked with Franklin while there. Did you say Nazis? <laughs> Nazi refugees. Oh, I was like, I thought wait. I said both refugees from the Nazis, but if I accidentally said both Nazis, I apologize. I, I may have just missed that. We have been drinking, but I just heard Nazis. and I was like, hold on. This is not the Rewind. story I signed up yeah, for. Right? Um, during her her tenure at BCURA, she stayed with Adrian Wiles, which is the friend I talked about earlier that was also a refugee, um, who had a boarding house in Cambridge until her cousin Irene asked her to join in a vacated house that her uncle had left them in Putney. Um, oh, isn't that so nice to be left a house in Putney? Um, during this time, her and Irene volunteered as an air raid warden and regularly made patrols to see welfare of people during air raids. So this was during World, World, World War II. II. Yep. When London's just getting the shit bombed out of it yep. all the That's time. That's like the only really mention of World War II until it ends. <sighs> Fucking Nazis. Just get out of my stories. I'm so sick of you. Right. She studied the porosity of coal using helium to determine its density. And through this, she discovered the relationship between the constrictions in pores of coal and the permeability of the porous surface. Um, this work was the basis of her PhD thesis and the physical chemistry of solid organic, which was, sorry, which was called 
the physical chemistry of solid organic colloids with special reference to coal for which the University of Cambridge awarded her a PhD in 1945. And take a breath. That was a lot of words. Back to World War II. With World War II ending in 1945. Thank God. Rosalind asked Adrian Weil, her friend, for help and to let her know of any job openings for, quote, a physical chemist who knows very little physical chemistry, but quite a lot about holes in coal, end quote. Oh, my God. At a conference in the autumn of 1946, Weil introduced her to Marcel Matthew, a director of the Centre National de la Recharge Scientifique. Scientifique. I like that. Or CNRS. Um, which is the network of institutes that comprise the major part of scientific research laboratories supported by the French government. So it's like a, a network, not just like one school. Okay. Um, this led her to getting an appointment with Jacques Mering at the Le- <laughs> Laboratoire Central des Services Chimiques de la Tête in Paris. Or Labo, as it was referred to by the staff. The Labo! <laughs> That's like such beautiful French. Labo. It's the Labo. <laughs> she joined the Labo of Maring on uh, February 14th, so Valentine's Day, 1947, so as romantic. one of 15 chercheurs or researchers. Oh, okay. I probably pronounced that way wrong. So Maring, who she was now working under, was an X-ray crystallographer who applied X-ray diffractions to the study of rayon and other amorphous substances in contrast to the thousands of regular crystals that had been studied by this method for many years. So basically, he's kind of doing something new. Okay. Um, he taught her the practical aspects of applying x-rays or x-ray crystallo- crystallography to those amorphous substances. Um, Rosalind applied them to further problems related to coal. <laughs> in particular, the changes to the arrangement of atoms when it is converted to graphite. She published several several further papers on this, which have become part of the mainstream of physics and chemistry of coal. I love she is just, like, super into coal. Right? She's the coal queen. Right. <laughs> Rosalind worked hard and played hard. She was an intrep- intrepid traveler and avid hiker with a great love of the outdoors who enjoyed spirited discussions of science and politics. Friends and close colleagues considered Rosalind a brilliant scientist and a kind-hearted woman. However... She could also be a bit short-tempered and stubborn. I thought you were going to say she could also be a bitch. (laughs) Kind of. I mean, short-tempered and stubborn. A little bit. A little bitchy. Um, Some of her colleagues did find her a bit bit of a challenge to work with. Um, Among them was Maurice Wilkins, the man she she would work for at King's College. In 1915, Rosalind was granted a three-year Turner and Newell Fellowship to work at King's College in London. January 1955 found her working in the re- as a research associate for the Medical Research Council's Biophysics Unit, directed by John Randall. So now she's at King's College. She was originally appointed to work on X-ray diffraction of proteins and lipids in solution, but Randall redirected her work to DNA fibers because of new developments in this field, and she was to be the only experienced experimental diffraction researcher at King's at the time. Randall made this reassignment even before she started working at King's because of the following pioneer work by Maurice Wilkins and assigned Raymond Gosling, a PhD student, to help her. So she's studying DNA now? Yep. What year is this? 1951. Holy shit. Yep. That is early. Right. 
Like, so, I always think of DNA as in forensic DNA, and that didn't really start taking off until the 80s and 90s. Right. So the fact they're looking, I mean, I guess it couldn't have taken off if they hadn't been doing the groundwork in the 50s. Yeah, But exactly. that's still shocking to me. Um, so Wilkins and Gosling, the, the two people that she'd end up working with, um, had already obtained an outstanding diffraction picture of DNA, which sparked further interest in this molecule, which is why Randall reassigned her to work with DNA. Okay. Because they had been already ex- doing this analysis since May 1950. Randall, however, never informed them that Rosalind was to take over the DNA diffraction work and the guidance of Godling's thesis, which is where a lot of the tension between Wilkins and Rosalind comes in, is because he kind of felt like she took his work but it wasn't really her fault yeah so she goes in to work on day one is like hey i'm so you know happy to be working yep. with you guys uh could you do this and you do that and they're like who the fuck are you right. and, are you and i mean wilkins wasn't under her but you know like it was te- it even says randall's lack of communication about this reassignment significantly contributed to the well-documented friction that developed between wilkins and rosalind if only he had sent an email right just fucking memo it yeah Write a memo, just put it out there, or talk to him face to face. I don't know right. how you do Morse code, smoke signals, whatever. Basically, she took he took she took his PhD student as well. Ah, so Rosalind, now working with Gosling, who was the PhD student, started to apply her expertise expertise in X-ray diffraction techniques to the structure of DNA. She used a new fine focus X-ray tube and micro camera, which was ordered by Wilkins before she started. Oh, so he's um, taken. She's taken its toys right? too, which she refined, adjusted, and focused carefully. Drawing upon her physical chemistry background, she also skillfully manipulated the critical hydration of her specimens. When Wilkins inquired about this improved technique, she replied in terms which offended Wilkins, as Rosalind had quote an air of cool superiority. End quote. Oh, because she knew she was fucking smart right. and she was a woman that pissed him off. Yeah. Franklin presented their data at a lecture in November 1951 in King's College. In her lecture notes, she wrote the following, quote, the results suggest a helical structure, which very closely packed containing two, three or four coaxial nucleic acid chains per helical unit and having the phosphate groups near the outside. So anyone that knows anything about DNA, that's correct. Did she discover the double helix? And not, I mean, yes, but no. It, it's You'll see. Okay. We're only like halfway through. Oh, shit. I told you it's long. <laughs> but worth telling. Rosalind had a habit of intensely looking people in the eye while being concise and impatient and direct, and it unnerved many of her colleagues, which in, was in stark Contrast to Wilkins, who was very shy and slowly calculating in the speech he would use, and he would avoid direct eye contact. Good for her, but I am definitely a Wilkins. I'm like, oh, like, if you could maybe just do this thing, I'd really appreciate it. If you have time, or you could shoot me in the face, whatever works for you. In spite of this intense atmosphere between the two, Rosalind and Gosling discovered that there were two forms of DNA, a high humidity when wet, the DNA fiber became long and thin, and when it was dried, it became short and fat. Franklin, Same. <laughs> Franklin named these two forms B and A respectively. And it, there's a subnote in here that says the biological function is, functions of A DNA were, n- were only discovered 60 years later. So there is A DNA and B DNA, but no one really looked into A DNA until 60 years later. Okay. So because of the, the personality conflict, Randall, their boss that kind of started this whole conflict. Um, kind of his fault. Right. Ch- uh, split 
the work on DNA. Rosalind chose the data-rich A form while Wilkins selected the B form. The X-ray diffraction pictures that they took during this time, including the landmark photo 51 taken by Rosalind's grad student, Gosling at the time, have been called by John Desmond Burnell as, quote, amongst the most beautiful X-ray photographs of any substance ever taken, end quote. DNA is pretty fucking lovely. Um, By the end of 1951, it was generally accepted at King's that the B form of DNA was a helix. Um, But after she recorded an asymmetrical image, Rosalind became unconvinced that the A form of DNA was a helix as well. By January 1953, Franklin had reconciled her conflicting data, concluding that both DNA forms had two helicals and had started to write a series of three draft manuscripts, two of which included a double helical DNA backbone. Her two ADNA manuscripts reached the Acta Crystallographica in Copenhagen on March 6, 1953, one day before Crick and Watson had completed their model on BDNA. So, like, she just kind of, like, yeah, snuck in in front of these other people. So, so but she has... Crick a- and Watson are the people that get credit for but discovering s- DNA. But, okay, so... Is it that she had an opposing idea and got that in first? No, nope, and then the other the same guys. Idea. Oh, okay, but she got hers in first. Yep, by okay. a day. Okay. They th- people think that she must have mailed them while while her the Cambridge team was still building their model, and certainly had it written before she knew of their work. So she wasn't trying to shit on anyone. She was like, "Oh, I found this thing. Exactly. Let me write like, about she it." She didn't know about it. Um, as vividly described in the book, the double helix. On January 30th, 1953, Watson traveled to King's carrying a preprint of Linus Pauling's incorrect proposal for DNA structure. Since Wilkins was not in his office, Watson went to Rosalind's lab with his urgent message that they should all collaborate before Pauling discovered his error. So basically, this guy was saying the wrong things about DNA. Okay. Um, The unimpressed Rosalind became angry when Watson's suggestion she did not know how to interpret her own data. Watson Did ha- he gaslight her about her own research? Watson him. hastily retreated, backing into Wilkins, who had been attracted by the commotion. Wilkins commiserated with his harried friend and then showed Watson Rosalind's DNA X-ray image. Watson, in turn, showed Wilkins a pre-publication manuscript by Pauling and Corey, which contained a DNA structure remarkably like their first incorrect model. So the one that she said wasn't a helix. Right. So, yeah. Um, Rosalind ended up leaving King's College in 1953 for Birkbeck College in a move that she had planned for some time and decided or and described in a letter to Adrian Weil as, quote, moving from the palace to the slums, but pleasanter all the same, end quote. So she was already planning on getting out of there. And this was just like, okay, I'm soups done. Yep. Because she was recruited by the physics department chair, John Desmond Bernal, um, who was also a crystallographer. Um, and he was known for promoting women crystallographers. So, yeah, when he offered the job, she was like, yeah. I'm, this is I'm a healthier done. environment for her to be in. Right. Her new laboratories um, were housed in a pair of dilapidated and cramped Georgian houses containing several different departments. Um, Rosalind frequently took Bernal to task over the careless attitude of some of the other laboratory staff, noting after workers in the pharmacy department flooded her first floor laboratory with water. What? Yeah. How do you do that? I don't know. What about pharmacy makes you right? flood things? 
Um, even though she was no longer officially his supervisor, she went on to help Gosling finish his thesis. Aww. And together they published the first evidence of double helix in the A form of DNA in, in the July 25th issue of Nature. which is And that was, his, that was her grad student? Aww. Yeah. Who she technically wasn't. Like, because because she left that college, he wasn't her grad student anymore, but she still helped him finish. Yeah. Which is nice. Oh, that's sweet. Right. Go Gosling. Um, at the end of 1954, um, she secured funding from the Agricultural Research, Research Council, or ARC, which enabled her to work as a senior scientist supervising her own researching group. So now she's in the driver's seat. Yep. She, she, got, um, she got a physics student from King's College a Cambridge graduate and two other people that they don't mention. Um, despite our story, right? Despite the arc funding, um, Rosalind wrote to Bernal that the existing facilities remained highly unsuitable for conducting research. Quote, my desk and lab are on the fourth floor. My x-ray tube is in the basement and I am responsible for the work of four people distributed over the basement, first and second floors on two different staircases. So what you're telling me is that she got in her steps every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hella steps. So many steps. So Franklin, uh, Rosalind continued to explore um, another major nucleic acid, RNA. Ooh, I know. I have heard of that. Yeah, which is equally central to life as DNA. That's what it says. Um, again, she used her x-ray crystallography technique to like study the structure of it. And she specifically studied the RNA in the tobacco mosaic virus or the TMV. Okay. That is no, I don't know. But she specifically studied RNA in that. She met Aaron Klug in 1954, which led to a long-standing and successful collaboration. Klug had just earned his PhD from Trinity College in Cambridge, and then went on to join Birkbeck, which is where she was now working in 1953. In 1955, Rosalind published her first major work on the TMV in Nature. So the same magazine again, in which she described that all TMV virus particles were of the same length. This was in direct contradiction to the ideas of the eminent virologist Norman Pyrie, though her observation ultimately proved correct. So she's stepping to experts in the field saying, hey, actually, it's this way. You're wrong. Right. And she's fucking right. Yeah. Oh, that's not how you make friends as a woman in the 19... Nope. Any time. (laughs) Um. Rosalind went on to assign the study of the complete structure of TMV to her new PhD student, Holmes. They soon discovered and published that that the covering of TMV was protein molecules arranged in helicals. Her colleague Klug worked on spherical viruses with his students, um, with Rosalind coordinating and overseeing their work. As a team from 1956, they started publishing seminal works on TMV, cucumber virus 4, and turnip yellow mosaic virus. So they're, like, they're researching RNA and all these different things. Okay. And, you know, finding out that it's different, but roughly the same, kind of like DNA. Yeah, like in different uh, types of organisms or critters, like exactly. viruses. Um, in 1957, her research grant from ARC expired, and though she was giving a, given a one-year extension, ma- making it end in March of 1958. She was invited to the first major international fair after World War II, which was held in Brussels in 1958. She was invited to make a five-foot-high model of TMV, which she started in 1957. Her materials included table tennis balls, plastic bicycle, bicycle ha- and plastic bicycle handlebar grips. Whew. 
The Brussels World Fair, with an exhibit of her virus model at the International Science Pavilion, opened on the 17th of April, one day after she died. No! What?! I thought my death came out of nowhere. Uh, we're still not in the middle of a sentence. We're still not getting to her death yet. Like, it's because that just, like, they kind of, like, snuck that in. Jesus. Because she started working on it a year before and then finished it and then didn't get to see it unveiled. Which oh, is really sad. I'm bummed out now. Um, in 1956, Rosalind visited. So this is two years before she died. Visited the University of California, Berkeley, where colleagues suggested her group start researching the polio virus. Ooh. In 1957, she applied for a grant from the United States Public Health Service of National Institutes of Health, which approved a 10000 for three years grant, the largest fund ever received at Birkbeck. In her grant application, Rosalind mentioned her new interest in animal virus research. She obtained... She obtained her boss's consent on July 1957, though serious concerns were raised after she disclosed her intentions to research a live instead of killed polio virus. Oh, oh, fuck. No, Um, honey. Eventually, her boss arranged for the virus to be safely stored at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine during the group's research. Which is probably good, considering, like, how shitty it sounds like their, like, department was. Yeah. Um, With her group, Rosalind then commenced deciphering the structure of the polio virus while in its crystalline form. She attempted to mount the virus crystals in capillary tubes for x-ray studies, but was forced to end her work due to her rapidly failing health. Oh, no. She didn't get polio, right? Because if this ends with her getting polio, she I'm didn't get leaving. Polio. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This is our last episode. Emily Rage quits. Right. Um, Clug, her, she, you know, the the guy that she made good friends with, um, took her over, buddy. took over for as her for her as group leader, and he Finch and Holmes continued researching the structure of the polio virus and succeeded in obtaining extremely detailed X-ray images of the virus. Um, their findings were published in 1959, revealing that the polio virus was an icosahedral symmetry and in the same paper suggested the possibility for all spherical viruses to possess the same symmetry. So they're kind of creating a map of what this virus and similar viruses look like. Right. Okay. Um, Rosalind did not seem to have intimate relationships with anything, anyone over the course of her life and always kept her deepest personal feelings to herself. After her younger days, she avoided close friendships with the opposite sex. Once when her cousins visited them, she even paid her brother Roland to accompany them. In her later years, Evie Ellis, who had shared her bedroom when when she was a child refugee and who was then married to Ernst Holgumuth and had moved to Notting Hill from Chicago, tried matchmaking her with Ralph Millibrand but failed. Rosalind once told Evie that her flatmate had asked her for a drink, but she did not get the get the intention oh she didn't she didn't catch she the didn't hand. understand she did not pick up what he was laying down she was quite infatuated by her french mentor marrying who had a wife and a mistress marrying was also <laughs> admittedly also has admitted that he was captivated by her intelligence and beauty can i just say that it seems like everyone's trying to get her hooked up and everyone's trying to hook up with her but the only person she's interested in has a wife and a mistress like what? Right. That's funny. According to Sayer, she did confess her feelings for marrying when 
she was undergoing surgery, but her family has denied this. But Maring wept when he visited her later and destroyed all her letters. So it sounds like they might have. They deaf fucked. Right. Her closest personal affair was probably with her once postdoctoral student, Donald, Donald Casper. In 1956, she visited him at his home in Colorado <clears throat> after a tour to the University of California, Berkeley. She was known to remark later that Casper was one, quote, she might have loved, might have married. End quote. In the letter to Sayer, she described him as an ideal match. See, I I was starting to wonder if like maybe she was asexual or was or aromantic or something. But it sounds like, like it sounds like it just the timing never worked out for anyone she was actually interested in. Yeah. So the next part is illness and death. <sighs> in mid 1956, while on a work related trip to the United States, Rosalind first began to suspect a health problem. In New York, she found she had difficulty zipping her skirt. Her stomach had bulged. Back in London, she she consulted Mayor Livingstone, who asked her, you're not pregnant, are you? To which she retorted, I wish I were. Her case was marked urgent, and an operation on September 4th of the same year revealed two tumors in her ad- abdomen. Oh, no. After this period and other periods of hospitalization, Rosalind spent time convalescing with various friends and family members. These included Anne Sayre, Francis Crick, his wife Adil, with whom... Um, Rosalind had formed a strong friendship and finally with Roland and Nina Franklin with the Roland and Nina Franklin family where Rosalind's nieces and nephews bolstered her spirits so that's her oldest brother okay Franklin or not Franklin well I mean her name is Franklin Rosalind chose not to stay with her parents because her mother's uncontrollable grief and crying upset her too much (laughs) Even while Mom, undergoing, I'm the one who's fucking dying here. Right. You need to tone it down. Even while undergoing cancer treatment, Rosalind continued to work, and her group continued to produce results. Seven papers in 1956 and six more in 1957. Oh my god! At the end of 1957, Rosalind again fell ill and was admitted to the Royal Marsden Hospital. On the 2nd of December, she made her will. She named her three brothers as executors and made her colleague Aaron Klug the principal beneficiary who would receive 3000 and her Austin car. Her other friends, Mayor Livingstone, would get $2,000 and Piper 1000 and her nurse, Miss Griffith, 250 The remainder of the estate was to be used for charities. Given scholarships to those refugees, right. just like her daddy did. She returned to work on January 1958 and was given, and she was given a promotion to research associate in biophysics on February 25th. She fell ill again on March 30th and she died on the April, April 16th, 1958 in Chelsea, London of bronchopneumonia secondary carcinomatosis and ovarian cancer. Oh, Jesus. Exposure to x-ray radiation is sometimes considered to be a possible factor. So just as her career was peaking, it was tragically cut short when she died at the age of 37. That, I was going to say, because she was born in the 1920s. I'm trying to do the math. I'm like, she's just still a baby. Right. She was interred on April 17th in the family plot at Williston United Synagogue Cemetery at Beaconsfield Road in London. The inscription on her tombstone reads, In memory of Rosalind Elise Franklin, Hebrew script, Rochelle slash Rachel, daughter of Yehuda, which was her Hebrew name. Okay. Dearly loved elder daughter of Ellis and Muriel Franklin, July 25th, 1920 to April 16th, 1958, scientist. Her research and discoveries on viruses remain of lasting benefit to mankind. And then in Hebrew, the, the initials for her soul shall be bound in the bundle of life. 
Oh, God damn, I'm going to cry. Right. So that sucks. After her death, some there were some controversies that arose because, of course, all those things come, you know, after death. Yep. Um, Ann Sayer, which was one of her friends that I mentioned earlier, um, spoke about how she faced a lot of sexism in science. Um, in, in fact, in a quote, it says, in 1951, King's College London as an institution was not distinguished for the welcome that it offered women. Rosalind usually was unused to Perda, a religious and social institution of female seclusion. There was one other woman scientist in the, on the laboratory staff. So basically her friend went on to like write a, write a book, essentially. And kind of revealed how, how she like, struggled how with sexism. sexism was. Another quote from the book is that while the math, while the male staff at King's lunched in a large, comfortable, rather clubby dining room, the female staff of all ranks lunched in the students' hall or away from the premises. I was going to guess the bathroom. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, I, they didn't touch on it a lot, like, in the research, but she did face, you know, a lot of problems. So, wait, you're telling me this big prestigious university in the 1950s was using sexist tactics to discriminate against their female employees? La gasp. Um, it, it does seem that uh, Rosalind's group tended to eat together, actually, um, and that um, her colleagues treated men and women scientists alike. See, so, like her group seemed to work really well. Her team was woke. Every like the institution, everyone else was a bunch of snotty bitches. Right. So this says Sayer also in the book discusses at length Rosalind's struggle in pursuing science, particularly her father's concern about women in academic professions. Yeah, let's learn more about that. This account had been taken to accuse Ellis Franklin of sexism against his own daughter. A good deal of information explicitly claims that he strongly opposed her entering Newnham College. Well, I, it sounds like it because um, he's like, you don't get a scholarship right? and I'm not paying for this shit. Yeah, it goes further and in, in saying that he refused to pay her fees and that her aunt had to step in. Jeez, because you know what? Empowered women, empower yeah. women. Supposedly one of... Um, one of her sisters stepped up and said that these were these were myths, but you know that might just be family covering family type of thing. Yeah, or like, no, no, that's not why he prevented her from going to school. He was ju that was just the way he was. Right. You know, that was just his way. Um. So as I said, so the next con the next um controversy is her contribution to the model of DNA. So as I said, she got her contribution in before Crick and Watson did, but Crick and Watson um, seem to be the person people that have the credit for it or is po that popularized it. Uh, Rosalind was the first to discover and formulate the facts of DNA, which in fact constituted the basis for all later attempts to build a model of this molecule. However, Watson at the time, ignorant of the chemistry, Failed to comprehend the crucial information, and this led to the construction of a wrong model. But he, they're, they still have, like, they, they're still the ones known. Watson so is it like they were on the right track, but didn't have the full picture, creating yeah. incorrect model, and they still got the credit? Yep, because <sighs> they obviously went back and, like, fixed it. And it says the MRC report contained data from the King's group, which was Rosalind's group. 
Um, and it was given to Crick, who was working on his thesis at the time. Um, and supposedly he was given that photograph 51, so the photograph of DNA, um, without Rosalind's consent. Oh, so someone kind of snuck him her research and he used that? Yeah. And some people, some people say that, um, the PhD student gave it to him, you know, because she was leaving the college anyway. So, like, she wasn't going to be able to continue that work. And, you know, so there's different things. But basically, in the end, those two were the ones that got it because they, they finished a model of it. So it says, upon completion of their model, Crick and Watson had invited Wilkins to be co-author of the paper of structure. So Wilkins was the one that she didn't get along with. Oh. Wilkins turned down this offer as he had taken no part in building the model. He later expressed regret that greater discussion of co-authorship had not taken place as this might have helped to clarify the contribution the work at King's had made in the discovery, which was Rosalind. So the guy who did not like her even was like, hey, Uh, I'm not going to be a part of this because I I wasn't a part of it. But maybe I should have stepped in to be like, so who did all of this? Was it Rosalind? Because right. it sounds like it was. Yeah. Even the guy that didn't like right. her was like, hey, let's all be fucking adults about this. It even says there's no doubt that Rosalind's experimental data was used by Crick and Watson to build their model of DNA in 1953. Um, some people have explained that this citation omission um, suggested that it was a question of circumstance because it might have been difficult to cite an unpublished work. That they had just, you know, like, seen. So. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. That was was a whole thing. It was a whole tapestry of bullshit. (laughs) Fifteen years after the fact, the first clear recitation of Rosalind's contribution appeared as it permeated Watson's account, The Double Helix. So when he wrote the book, The Double Helix, it does seem like he gave her some credit although it was buried under descriptions of Watson's often quite negative regard towards Rosalind during the period of their work on DNA. So he's like, hey, she did this thing. She deserves credit. But God, what a fucking bitch. Like, she was such a nasty harlot. Like, oh, she was so cold and frigid. She did this thing. But what a fucking bitch, man. So legacy slash posthumous recognition, because most of her recognition, unfortunately, was posthumous bummer that's what happens when you die at 30 right um iota sigma pi designated a franklin um a national honorary member which they're a fraternity for women in science sorority uh, they said fraternity okay maybe they don't gender their college organizations so she she's an honorary member um, King's College London renamed the Orchard Residence at their Hampstead campus the Rosalind Franklin Hall. Aww. I know. It's so sad. Or so cute. So sad. It's cute, but it's sad. Because um, she New- died. Newnham College, so the other college she went to, um, opened a graduate residence named Rosalind Franklin Building and put a bust of her in its garden. Nice. Um, Birkbeck, <laughs> University of London School of Crystallography opened the Rosalind Franklin Laboratory. And everything was on the same fucking floor for convenience. The asteroid discovered in 1997 was named 924 Win Ross Franklin after her. Aw. She didn't even do anything with space. And they're just like, no, no, she needs this. Um, She deserves this. Yeah, right. 
the National Portrait Gallery in London added Rosalind Franklin's portrait next to those of Francis Crick, James Watson, and Maurice Wilkins. Good. Which I'm like, good. Put her next to the, you know, the other. Put people. her in the middle, and they're all branching off of her. Right. That would be so, that would be so funny. She is the sun. Um, the the American National Cancer Institute established the Rosalind E. Franklin Award for Women in Cancer Research. Oh, I know, right? And the University of Groningen, supported by the the EU, so the whole European Union, launched the Rosalind Franklin Fellowship to encourage women researchers to become full university professors. Aww. Right? Um, and then the Royal Society established the Rosalind Franklin Award. Officially, the Royal Society Rosalind Franklin Award and lecture. For an outstanding contribution to any area of natural science, engineering, and technology. The award consists of a silver-coated medal and a grant of 30,000 um, pounds. Damn. I keep saying dollars. I think I've said dollars several times, but it's pounds because it's English. This is all happening happening in the UK. In case all the weird town names didn't right? tip you off. <laughs> um, a few other colleges named stuff after She's rolling in recognition right now. In her grave. <laughs> The DNA sculpture um, outside of Clare College, Cambridge's Memorial Court, incorporates the words, the double helix model was supported by the work of Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins. Aww. Yeah, I'm like, ah. That's sweet. The St. Paul Girls School, where she also went, established the Rosalind Franklin Technology Center. Google honored her in 2013 with a Google Doodle. They damn have better. Right. So there's a lot of things. Oh, there's uh, Rosalind Franklin STEM Elementary in Pasco, Washington, the first science, technology, engineering, and math elementary school in the district. That's super cool. So that's really cool. Wow. Yeah. So there's been a lot of things going after. Like, there's been a lot of awards and, you know, things named after her, which I think is great. The most recent one. Was the European Space Agency, or the ESA, named their ExoMars rover Rosalind Franklin. Nice. I love all this random space stuff. So, side note, kind of sad side note. In 1962, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to James Watson, Francis Crick, and Maurice Wilkins for solving the structure of DNA. Boo! Supposedly, when people asked about it, they, they made two comments. One, the Nobel Committee doesn't give posthumous prizes, which I guess at the time maybe they didn't, but I'm pretty sure they do now, because I'm, I'm pretty sure I've heard of people posthumously getting a, no- a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm doing the hand jerk-off motion, because that seems like such a fucking cop-out. So they said that, and then their other explanation was they can't give the award to more than three people. But the people that won it, like James Watson and Francis Crick, said you should have given her the one in, in chemistry then. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to end... There, unfortunately. Well, she killed it. And I I love this trend that's going on of recognizing women's accomplishments from history. And it, it sucks because it's kind of like too little too late because so many of them are no longer with us. Right. But I mean, but it's both so women important. we covered today was like they're at the high of what they're doing and then they're just gone. Yeah. And I mean, Rosalind, it was just cancer. I mean, yeah. What can you do about that, Louisa? Tuberculosis. Like, it just illness cut them down in their prime. Yeah, and, and they don't have what we have today where, you know, and like she got lucky. It sounds like she went into remission twice. 
you know, but yeah. it just came back and kicked her ass, you know, and tuberculosis. That's just kind of how it is. They don't, they, back then they didn't have ways to cure it or ways to prevent it. Right. There was just, you know, going out west and hoping the dry air would clear out your lungs. Right. I know. Or apparently going to the ocean for your delicate health. Going to the south of France to clear clear your tuberculosis. Like, I love old-timey remedies. Like, go on vacation to a beautiful countryside. That'll help you. Stop being stressed. Yeah. I'm like, uh, can I get 20 cc's of that? Can I get a vacation? Can I get a prescription? for that can i get a prescription for a country house in the south of france i will learn french if i have to like that's how much i need this that's kind of a bummer though i mean i mean at least she's like at least even some of the men she worked with were like nah like she needs credit yeah absolutely and what i think is interesting is uh so she died before the nobel prize was awarded correct Mm -hmm. can you imagine what she would have done had she been alive oh, for that. Shit would have gone down. The Nobel well, Prize I mean, would died, not have been awarded to them. She died before she even got to like display her RNA yeah. statue. I mean, it still went up, which is nice, but... She would know. have pitched a fit, and that would have been the most epic fight in history, right. and I wish that would have happened. Right. And she would. Have, she deserved it. She did. So, this... On that bummer of a yeah, note. Yeah, this episode's been kind of a bummer. Um... Would you like to go first or would no, you like me to go, go first? first? I can go first. Okay. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at. That's why you can go first. <laughs> this is so hard. I actually, I've had kind of a crappy week. Uh, I've had all these back problems and neck problems and this rain has been awful and I'm still fighting with the permit office, but I am thankful Kelly and I got to go on a walk this week. We nice. got to record today. It's beautiful weather. I went and worked out yesterday, and I really didn't want to, but I pushed myself to do nice. it, so I'm very proud of myself. Um, and then I actually got my boyfriend to do a cycling class with me at the gym, which was awesome. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. He almost died. It was great. <laughs> it was funny. I he made probably a- doesn't have the lung stamina. Yeah. I made a joke. You know, I was like, oh, you know... Was I distracting in my little short workout shorts? And he goes, anyone who has time to admire anyone's body is not working hard enough. I was <laughs> dying. I'm like, aw, I love you. That's funny. How about you? That's hard. I mean, like, I'm thankful for a lot of things, but I feel like I'm just repeating myself. There's like the over. default. Well, I got a pretty sweet family and dogs. Right? So and my husband and yeah, like, uh, I am thankful that Charlie was well behaved at the dog park yesterday. Yes. That was I'm nice. thankful for the absolutely amazing meal I had yesterday. Um, like, it wasn't like out of this world, but like, so there's a place called the Farmington Steakhouse. So if you're ever up there or like on your way to the cities, go out of your way and go there. It's delicious. Um, and so you just like the prices are super cheap. So I got a steak burger for four fifty five. What? And you get whatever meat you order, plus Texas toast, a baked potato, and a salad or soup. We're gonna end this episode early because Kelly and I need to go eat our weight and meat. Oh god, it was <laughs> and it was really good. Like like I said, it's not like out of this world like steak, but it's it's good steak. And well, it's I mean, it's for a lot of steak. Stuff. Well, it's like a lot. See, I think they must like locally source everything or something for it to be so cheap. But like, it's a full plate of food. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was good. So I'm thankful for that. I'm glad. 
Well, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please uh, like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Um, hit us up on our email at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. You know, let us know about your herstory heroes or your present day heroes, you know, whatever you want. We'd love to hear from you. And check out our website at whiningaboutherstory.com. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.